Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Lee Sklar. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. Welcome to Inside Music Cast. Today's episode features one of the most reliable, versatile, and talented bass players in the music business. Not only has he performed with countless artists such as Phil Collins, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Lyle Lovett, and Willie Nelson, just to name a few, he's also involved with his own band, The Barefoot Servants. Along with his amazing bass playing abilities, today's guest might be as well known for his trademark flowing beard. <laughs> Inside Music Cast welcomes Lee Sklar. Lee, thanks for joining us today. Oh man, my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. So you got to tell me, just how long is that beard? Yeah, exactly. We've been taking bets. <laughs> right. I wish it wasn't the longest thing on me, but <laughs> the last time I actually saw myself clean shaven was when I got my high school diploma in 1965. Dude, wow! Just, just you, you judge, Most of the artists I work with are younger than my beard. <laughs> That's I, nice. I, I trim it pretty regularly, not as much as my wife would like, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 I trim it down and. Uh, but it, you know, I kind of got stuck with it as, as you know, like this, like kind of like Billy Gibbons and the guys. Got exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Let's dive in. Your, your music career as a bassist has spanned over the course of like thirty plus years, and it's still going strong. And although the bass has been your bread and butter for all of these years, the piano was actually the first instrument you learned to play. And how old were you when you started playing piano? And at what point in your musical career did you decide to take up the bass guitar? I, I started playing piano when I was about five. We had a piano that was a family piano, so there was one in the house, and I just developed... Uh, actually, the, the thing for me was, as a little kid, Liberace used to have a TV show, yeah. and I used to watch that as a kid and was just completely enamored with the whole scene. The music was great, and just the shtick oh, was yeah. great, you know, with the candelabra mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So I, I, I developed an affinity to the piano and kept studying and studying, and, and actually... It, didn't reach uh, achieve success from a you know a commercial standpoint as I was a little kid, but I, within the piano community in Los Angeles, I actually developed a, a pretty good reputation by the time I was like eight years old. Um, but when I went into junior high school, I went in and said, "Well, here I am, your piano players here." And the uh, music teacher, Mr. Uh, Theodore Lynn, I still can't call him Ted; I have to call him Mr. Lynn. Uh -huh. um, but he. Uh, he said, look, we've got 50 kids here that play piano, but we don't have anybody that, you know, we need a string bass player. And I, he said, would you be willing to try that? And I said, yeah. And then he brought one out, and I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> um, but he, he was very patient, and I suddenly, as soon as I put a string bass in my hands, I just went, this is bitching. I like this. <laughs> and next thing you know, the piano sort of disappeared, and my focus became on upright bass. And primarily, as a pianist, I was really focused on classical. I was not a, a jazz player or anything. I was a classical right. musician, and when I started bass, it was still all classical and some jazz. Rock really hadn't quite entered my life yet. Mm -hmm. Were there any other influences that made you decide to stick with the bass guitar? Did you ever think about going back to the piano, or 
or did you just solely take up the bass and go with it based on your music teacher's I recommendation? Just kind of my focus went to the bass, and I just kind of went there and left the piano sitting in uh, kind of on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, things the thing that really changed my life in terms of the bass was uh, there were a lot of guys I, I loved when I was first starting, but they my my skills were not in there their league when I would listen to like Charlie Mingus and Red Calendar and, and you know some of the, the truly yeah. unbelievable great upright players. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was um, studying upright, one of my teachers by the time I got into college was a guy named Nat Gangersky and the student who would study with him just before my lesson and I would sit out in his living room and listen to their lesson was a guy named Gary Carr. Mm-hmm. Gary's probably one of the greatest upright players that's ever lived. And I would kind of sit out there going, what the hell am I doing here, <laughs> listening to this monster in the other uh-huh. room. But the thing that changed my life was the Beatles, like so many musicians. When the English invasion happened and I started listening to McCartney and then, you know, then discovered everything that was coming out of there, uh, I, just, I just kind of went, oh, this is where I need to be and started playing electric. And, and everything just kind of turned around at that point. McCartney sort of revolutionized the beginning of the, you know, just with the, the way he played his bass and so forth. Um, it came in so strong and that sound was so new that. Absolutely. I mean, talk a little about, about that. I mean, this guy created an incredible amount of uh, momentum and for a brand new style that was so, you know, it, it sort of whacked everybody in the head. Well, his, the, the quality of his lyrical bass playing is what really got me where, you know, there was, there was you know, a lot of bass going on out there. But somehow the way he interpreted bass uh, within his own writing, and he and you know he and, um, and Lennon's writing was was really quite to me unique. Uh, rather than just being a fundamental support, he was bringing this entire counterpuntal melodic content to the to the music, and especially in the kind of the the, the mid later years, when yeah. like Revolver and in that period, and songs like Fixing a Hole. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it blew my mind, and then I was a huge fan of Bob Mosley, who was in a group called Moby Grape out of San Francisco, and I was a Jack Bruce fan, and you know, I just started kind of eating all of that stuff up and just going, you know, this is this is a brave new world. And then for me, when I hooked up with James Taylor, it made me think in a new way because James is such an absolutely comprehensive guitarist, where he's got these moving melodic lines, a moving thumb bass line going all the time that I had to think melodically in a very different way to to have parts that justified being there because he already had it covered. Yeah. Lee, I'm a keyboard player, and and you know keyboard players they say they they think differently. But you've been you've been there on the keyboard side, and and you know that you know we us guys think melodic and, and chords and so forth. What's the difference in the ear of how a keyboardist would hear, and as to what a bassist gets to, you know, you you evolve in your hearing what you listen to and what you base your bass line on and so forth. It's a different approach, isn't it? Well, I, I think it's. It's a slightly different approach. I think if, if, you're, if you're a good musician, um, the, primary, the primary thing really is the song that you're working on. And I've worked with a lot of keyboard players where I hear what they're doing in their left hand, and it's pretty much what I would be thinking about as a bass player. Yeah, that's what I was talking the about. Real, the real difference just comes into the actual physical structure of the instrument. You can approach things in a completely different way because, you know, there's parts that I've been handed in the studio 
that are damn near physically impossible to play because they were done on a keyboard. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, you have to work within both the, uh, the limitations of your instrument and also the things that make that instrument unique. I always kind of look at bass and I go, that really is the bottom end. That, that's what this is all about. Uh, I've I've always enjoyed you know when I would hear a guy like like Jimmy Smith or something a guy playing B three and he's sitting there with those bass pedals and he's playing great bass lines with his feet uh-huh. so um, you know it, it's one of those things that it, it's not so much the instrument as much as the musician to me uh, a, a lot of guys who play you know left hand bass uh, while they're playing piano or, or organ or whatever don't really think about that end of it that's just kind of filler so it's not that exciting and other guys are just absolutely gifted with what they do on the bottom end and you just sort of sit back and awe and you can kind of go man this is yeah pretty amazing yeah hey lee you uh, you're actually a midwesterner you were born in milwaukee right yep but your family moved to southern california when you were very young which as as fate would have it you know proved to be the perfect place for you to discover and develop your talent as a musician. Um, what what ultimately brought you and your family to the Los Angeles area? I think my dad just came here for work. Okay. Um, he, 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 he held tons of jobs in his life. He's one of these guys that's kind of a gypsy in his heart. And <laughs> he would start a job and get bored and move on. Mm-hmm. But back in Wisconsin, one of, the, one of the jobs he had was a school teacher, and he had an opportunity to um, relocate, and he decided to come to... The two choices that he had was Los Angeles and Hawaii. And back then, Hawaii just seemed way too far away. (laughs) Um, So we ended up in in Los Angeles. And I'm really grateful of that, because if I had stayed in Milwaukee, I would have had to kick Daryl Sturmer's ass for some (laughs) attention in Milwaukee. He's the king of musical Milwaukee. Um, So that worked out really well. And, you know, you just kind of look at your life, and and you see all of these different things that, you know, avenues that, that you have crossed, and... Sometimes you've made choices and gone down a road where you go, Jesus, that was the dumbest thing I ever did. Yeah. I just missed a great you know, opportunity. And other times you were in the perfect place at the perfect time for something to, you know, positive to happen in your life. And L.A., I mean, I love Los Angeles, but certainly as a kid growing up here through the 50s and, and 60s, it was a really magical town because it didn't have nearly the amount of people in it and the traffic and, and all the stuff that we have to deal with now. Um, so it was it was pretty fantastic, and uh, I I can't imagine any place I would rather have uh, have grown up than here in L.A. Well, you certainly have natural you know music abilities, and I wondered if if uh, you credit that to your parents. Were they musicians, or did you have some other form of musical influence in your family? Um, not really. My my dad, when he was young, I think played a little saxophone, but he, I never heard him play it in, in the household. I think it was just my parents really enjoyed music, so they always had, you know, we always had the old hi-fi going, and there was always, you know, lots of records being played. So, I, you know, I would hear a lot, and I had a, another friend, like in high school, who, uh, uh, in junior high and high school, named Terry Smith, who was probably one of, if you saw him, you'd go, this is one of the whitest guys I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And this guy absolutely lived and breathed <laughs> R&B, and he turned me on to Joe Tex and James Brown and, you know, every, everybody of that ilk. And uh, it was, uh, I used to go over to his house, and we would just sit and listen to records, all this stuff, and it was, you know, a real eye-opener, the Righteous Brothers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was eye-opening music coming on at that time, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely. 
you know, this was the days of, you know, listening to Wolfman Jack's radio yeah. show on XERB, and you'd hear all this stuff that people would say, that's pretty dangerous music you're listening <laughs> to there, boy. You know, that's going to get your hormones going, and you're going to go out and you're going to attack livestock or something. I don't know <laughs> their minds were thinking. Hey, listen, you, you met James Taylor shortly after college and began working with him, and uh, we'd like to know uh, a little bit about how you guys were hooking up, and, and how did that uh, relationship begin there, Lee? Well, I was in a band in the late 60s um, called Wolfgang, mm -hmm. and we were at, managed by Bill Graham, whose real name was Wolfgang, and we named the band after him just to kind of really suck up and endear ourselves. <laughs> uh, at one point, we lost our singer, and we started um, just hooking, you know, meeting different guys. Our, we had an English, uh, two of the guys in the band were from England. One of them was named Bugs Pemberton, who was our drummer. He had a friend named John Fishbeck who owned Crystal Recording Studios where Stevie Wonder made all of his records. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, one of John's best friends in his whole life was James Taylor, but this was before Fire and Rain or anything, so he brought James down to one of the rehearsals, and he was kind of hanging out with us, and um, he played us some of his songs, and we actually did a, a hard rock version of Country Road before it was ever even released. Hard rock? Yeah. Holy it God, was, wow. It kicked ass because the band was kind of like, um, sort of like a like a English West Coast version of, of like the Allman Brothers kind of a vibe. <laughs> well, did you record that? Please tell me you recorded oh, it. We actually, I actually have some demos we did back in 68 or 9, I can't remember. Wow. Pretty, it really stands up well at this point. I mean, really, the guys were great. It was a great band. So what happened was, you know, we met James, and, you know, whatever happened, happened. But uh, I got a call from Peter Asher mm -hmm. um, when he was producing and managing James, and James had an opportunity. Fire and Rain had just been released, and he was going to play the Troubadour in Los Angeles. And Peter called me and asked um, if I would consider doing it. He said, you know, James called me and he said, I don't know if you remember me, but I came down to the rehearsal and blah, blah, blah. So uh, we went and rehearsed uh, and, and went and played this gig and um, the place was basically, you know, almost you know, half full or, or whatever, because nobody had really heard of James. And then the next thing you know, Fire and Rain becomes the, the darling of, of the moment. Yeah. And uh, they call us to come back there, and the fire marshals practically had to close the place down because they had sold the rafters. I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> and uh, James, you know, we got an opportunity to go on the road for like a month, and I, I took some time off because I was still in college at that point, so I took time off to do it. And somehow that, e that month evolved into 20 years. And mm. next thing you know, I mean, we're were linked at the hip, and, and suddenly you had, you know, people like Jackson Brown appearing, and right. um, the, 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 the kind of the floodgates opened for, for this creative process, and a lot of these people who were doing these records would look at James's record, and then eventually like at Russ's record, I mean at uh, Jackson's record, and they would see myself and Russ Kunkel on them, so they started calling us to, to be the rhythm section, thinking that we were the thing that made those guys great as compared to the fact that they were brilliant musicians, songwriters, singers. <laughs> we were a part of the equation. Yeah. And, uh, and so things just kind of took off, and I never got back to school. I, you know, after five years in college, I never did graduate. I just moved on, hit the road, and I've kind of been going ever since. So it's almost pretty much 30, 36 years now I've been on the road and, and recording. 
Well, you know, that in, in the 70s, you mentioned Russ Kunkel. Um, the names Sklar and Kunkel were two names that almost seemed inseparable when it came to, like, A-list rhythm sections. And, well, and certainly in pronunciation. <laughs> when did you first meet Russ Kunkel, and, and uh, can you recall your first session together? Well, I remember the first time I actually met Russ, I think, was in 1968 at some gig in town, and he was in a band called Things to Come. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we just said hello at that point. I think one of the first projects we ever did together, though, besides James, was um, Brian Highland, who did Itsy Bitsy Teensy Weensy Yellow Poke. Oh yeah, yes. He, he was doing a record <laughs> that was being produced by Del Shannon, who mm-hmm. did Runaway and all uh, that. Uh-huh. And I think Russ and I were hired to do that. And it, suddenly, it's like you know. Our, our our gear was showing up at every studio, and it was always sitting side by side. And um, we played together so much that literally we would do sessions where we could be in other rooms where we almost couldn't hear each other, yet we would just be locked and we would do fills together. It just was a one of those you know chemistries that work. Mm-hmm. And 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 knock on wood, we're still playing together. We're getting ready to head out to do Lyle Lovett's summer tour. Oh, great! So you know, I, mean, I love playing with Russ. Any chance I get is great. You know, Randy Newman, in my opinion, is, is probably one of the greatest American songwriters ever. And you had an opportunity to work with him on the Land of Dreams album back in 88. Oh, man, it was great. And for whatever reason, I've always assumed that uh, Newman would really run a really tight ship in the studio, but I've also heard that he's actually very open to creative input from uh, studio musicians during sessions. And I was going to ask you what your experience was like working with Randy. I think Randy is, is absolutely one of the most, most gifted people I've ever known. Um, and and the the driest arid sense of humor yes. <laughs> and, and all that uh, in the studio it was great. I think that was the record we did where Mark Knopfler was producing it with him, mm-hmm. and uh, Carlos Vega was playing drums. And you know we would just sit there and listen to these songs and just laugh and just go, man, this guy's so good. And it's just his his kind of wry sense of humor was so so great. But Randy's definitely one of those guys who's really he's like a. Uh, He's the head of the team, but he's a team player. Mm-hmm. But he was—he's always game, I think, for somebody to throw an idea. But he's also coming from the, the, the dynastic background he comes from, right? And uh, and and just his training and, and what he does—he's pretty focused on what he he really wants. So you don't have that much flexibility. But certainly, if you heard something and threw it out there, I'm sure he would just go, "Oh yeah, cool, let's do that." Mm-hmm. But the most fun was we did one tour with James Taylor, and Randy was a solo opening act for us. No kidding. And oh. it was unbelievable. I would have we loved to see it. there every night, the band, just in the wings, just like hooting and hollering and yelling at him to goad him on, and he would berate the audience in the most <laughs> affectionate way where people were smiling, and he was, as he's sitting there, sticking a knife in them. <laughs> He's, he's just nuts. I've seen, you know, I've seen countless live performances in my lifetime, but he is one musician, one artist that I've never had a chance to see and that's I'm dying to see him perform live. I just that, that would be the crown jewel in my concert going experience. Well, he he's he's a, he's a rare and unique experience and you know, the 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 sad thing is he just isn't out there that much. Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, have you ever played a Red Rock? Oh, yeah, we're playing there. We played there uh, with Lyle last summer, we're playing again this summer. I've played it with James and Jackson and all kinds of people. I've just read that that place is just so – that, that's a, a – you just remember playing there. Uh, the only sad thing is now that they've built a permanent structure in the stage. Oh, have they really? Yeah. It's oh. got all the rigging and all that stuff there. And there was so much more 
exciting when you just kind of went in and set up. Oh, yeah, and yeah. It was just that complete, you know, kind of lack of, of, of professionalism. <laughs> That's too bad. I always remember that U2 performance from Red Rocks. No, we've been playing there since probably the early 70s. Yeah. And uh, it's great. The, the real good test for you is just to run up the stairs <laughs> and get up to the top, and then you realize that 36 years have passed. <laughs> Yeah. Between the altitude and that, boy, it is—it's a—it's a tough joint sometimes. It is, but it is probably one of scenically one of the most beautiful amphitheaters in the world. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you've—you've you've been in the music business for over thirty years, and most notably as a session player. And you've undoubtedly experienced a variety of changes from technological advancements to the way the business is handled. And in your experience, how have these changes affected you as a player and the way you're hired and approached for sessions? Um, dramatically, yeah. Um, it's it's a strange time we've entered into now. A great deal of the work that I end up doing now, I end up, rather than going to a recording studio with a brilliant engineer and four or five, six other guys who are brilliant musicians, I generally end up going to somebody's bedroom mm -hmm. where they've got their Pro Tools rig set up and I'm putting mm -hmm. bass on an existing track that they've um, you know got some mock-up stuff on. Mm -hmm. So... There's an element that, to me, the exciting thing about this was the interaction of the players and, and the engineer and everybody. That that's where the magic would come from. Guys having basically a, a good outline of a song and then bringing their juice to the table. Mm -hmm. And in, in the advent of, of digital technology and the ease of recording now, so much of that has disappeared. So you're kind. Of, I'm stuck with a drum machine. I don't have a, a drummer who's got this, this ebb and flow that, yeah. that's so exciting and all that. But it, it's just the nature of things. It's the world we live in. The one the one thing that I that I try desperately to maintain is not turning into an old fart and just going. You know, back <laughs> in the old days, I feel really blessed that I was here for kind of the heyday of studio work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's the answer I thought you were going to give me, you know, because it seems because I'm I'm in the recording business too, and I, you know, the, the same things on my end uh, apply, and I just wonder if someday we're all going to wake up and 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 think, you know, hey, it would really be nice to go see people, you know, and and you know, get that groove back and and work with people in the way we used to, and well, it still happens. Yeah, uh, oh, I'm sure it does. Yeah, but just but not it, as often. It, it's the exception and not the rule, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think it'll ever go back to it. Personally, I mean, so many of the great studios here in Los Angeles are all closing down, and That's I don't sad. think anybody's going to ever reopen them again. Hmm. Um, the machines are different, the, the whole technology, and plus people's ears are different. You know, as, as our generation, or my generation, gets older and starts to disappear, there's generations below me now who have never sat there and argued analog, digital, and all mm -hmm. that stuff. Their ears have become accustomed to another thing, and they've also become, the people who are in it have become kind of accustomed to another process. So they're not lamenting the old process. They're only going with what is now for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, you know, I think all I can do is look back with fond memories. I mean, we just finished a new Rod Stewart record um, uh, over at Henson Studios, which used to be A&M Studios, okay. which were the old Charlie Chaplin Studios. and. <clears throat> I mean, it was great because we had an unbelievably great band. The local boy, Kenny Aronoff, was playing drums. Oh, yeah. And myself and Jamie Mahoborak on keyboard mm -hmm. and Dean Parks and Tim Pierce playing guitars. 
And we all sat in there, and it's all covers of classic rock songs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it felt like the old days. We had a great band, great engineer, great artist, and Rod was in singing live vocals with us, and it was fantastic. Did you feel that you had, once again, a chance to collaborate? Because I think, isn't that essentially what we're talking about? You're saying uh, you go into a studio, and you hook up, and you have everything's all digital now, but it, it's that essence of collaborating with another human, right? Exactly, and we were able to craft the songs and arrangements on the spot. And you get a bunch of musicians like that that are that good, and you just kind of sit there and you go, man, let's just, how about let's, let's experiment with this. Rod would come in, and, and this was, to me, was one of the most wonderful parts of it. I mean, here, I think Rod's like 62 now. Yeah. And Rod comes in and he goes, man, can we uh, take the key up? He's still I mean, pushing it, huh? almost unheard of. Every artist I know that age <laughs> wants you to lower their key. Right, right. But he was in there right in the thick of it all and uh, singing his ass off, and the band would just kick ideas around. And it was, it was, there was a lot of juices flowing. And uh, it, these things, you know, when they happen, they're fantastic. It's just, it's sort of sad that when I first started in this, that was a daily experience. And now we all kind of go, man, two months ago we did a thing with a live band. <laughs> but other than that, most of my work really is just people calling me to come over to their place and, and overdub bass. And uh, I love it, and I, I'm, I'm not knocking that, but it's just a completely, it's a completely different world now mm-hmm. when it comes to that stuff. Were, the, were all the players in this, um, um, this session with Rod Stewart, were, did you guys play on the whole record? On yeah. The, the whole CD? Which is also rare. Yeah, that is. It's very, very and one rare. one producer. Gee whiz. Yeah, instead of five tracks and five different producers and five different bands. Yeah, it's almost as if some t- these days, you know, every track has to have a different sound because um, maybe this is just part of the music business the way I it is. I think a lot of it is they do this because the people who are in charge of the whole thing don't have a concept. Mm-hmm. So they're throwing everything against the wall hoping something will stick. Yeah, and they have to have a cut for every genre of music so yeah. it can be played on every station. Yeah. You know? So. You know, but once again, that that just sort of turns into you know the old fart syndrome. You just kind of go, "Hey, it is what it is." Mm-hmm. I'm just glad to be getting a call and going and playing music. Yeah. Well, I hate to bring this up, Lee, but we are unfortunately out of time for this episode of Inside Music Cast. Okay, guys. But we'll pick up where we left off in two weeks for our August 4th episode, where we'll turn our attention to your band, the Barefoot Servants, and one of your favorite topics, hot rods. Cool. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Join us again in two weeks for part two of our conversation with Lee Sklar right here on Inside Music Cast. Thanks once again to Lee Sklar for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 